you have your Bibles, grab them, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and please stand out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. All right, this is out of 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 40. Only let, oh, sorry, (laughs) to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, he should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For, whether, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. When you were brought, when you were bought with a price, do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed man, betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I will spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning... As, as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious from worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity by having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord.
growing up, I, uh, we lived at the ball field, and we were always at one ball field or another. And there was one particular day where my game was over and my sisters were playing and it was going to be another long day at the ball field. And a, a buddy of mine who was a little bit older than me, I was about 15 at the time, and a uh, uh, guy who was probably 17 uh, said he was going fishing and asked me if I wanted to go. And I was like, boy, you bet I want to go fishing. And so uh, we hopped in the car. He was a longtime family friend. We hopped in the car and we're uh, driving down the road. And, and I don't even remember what we were talking about, but I remember him say these words that startled me to death. We were talking about something, and he looked at me, and he, and he, and he said, just kind of in passing, and he said, oh, uh, you know, your mom's first husband. And I said, what? What do you mean? And he all of a sudden realized, oh, you don't know. And I'm like, uh, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And you can imagine the swirling questions of panic that rose in this 15-year-old boy's mind. Is my dad really my dad? Like, what, what's going on? Who is this? What happened? What, what's going on? My mom was, uh, was married and, and divorced before she met my dad, and all that was history, and we kind of learned all through that. But then as this 15-year-old, I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to ask all these questions. I was, had pretty recently started following Jesus seriously, and I started looking those things up in the Bible, and I remember reading passages like, you know, in, where Jesus says if someone gets divorced and remarries, they commit adultery. And so I'm freaking out, wondering, can my mom be forgiven? Has she committed the unforgivable sin? Is she now going to go to hell forever because she got divorced and, and, and married this other guy, my dad? How do you repent of being married to someone? I was freaking out. Every one of us in this room on some way or another, has been affected by divorce. One of the reasons divorce is so heartbreaking is because it hurts everyone around you. Uh, it causes confusion. It creates questions. It creates pain, betrayal, shame. Uh, uh, even if it's not your fault, right, it, it still brings these things in your life. And so my goal this morning in talking through this text is not to heap a bunch of guilt and shame on those of us in this room who are divorced. Uh, I do not want you walking out this morning uh, burdened by the shame of uh, your divorce or the, the past in which that's true. My, instead, my hope is to teach us a biblical view of marriage, a biblical view of divorce, and to remind us of all of God's love and patience and his ability to make beauty out of our messes, even divorce. So if you're divorced this morning, you can untent your shoulders. You can relax. This is not a, 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 a divorce bashing time. Instead, it's a time to be showered with grace. The first thing I want us to see from the text this morning is that Christians should have a high view of marriage. Christians should have a high view of marriage. Now, while this is not the, the focal point, main point of the text, it, it lies in the background of this entire chapter. Uh, is the foundation for everything Paul is really saying here. The reason Paul spends so much time meticulously talking about the concepts of marriage and divorce is because marriage is a sacred thing and it is a really, really big deal. You know, most people in the world approach marriage uh, very wrongly. Most people in the world, Christians, non-Christians, uh, approach marriage like it is a consumer-type relationship. Uh, now, they wouldn't use those words, but that's really kind of what's going on in their hearts. They're looking for a person that brings them joy. They're looking for a person that's going to make them whole. 
they're on a happiness quest, and they think that this person is going to make them happy. They're going to fall in love, get married, have a, a house with red shutters and a tire swing out in the front. But a few years down the road, they find that they were disillusioned. They find that their dreams did not come true and the picture-perfect life and picture-perfect marriage was uh, not so fulfilling and not so, did not bring happiness. Instead, they just fight and it brings tension and they think they've fallen out of love, that this was, they must have married the wrong one and so they get divorced. The reason that uh, so often happens in marriage is because we are looking at marriage like it's a consumer relationship. That our relationship with our spouse is similar to my relationship with Chick-fil-A, bless God. I love Chick-fil-A. I support her. I cherish her. I advocate for her. I spend a lot of time with her. But if a new and improved and cheaper chicken place comes to Mainville, Ohio, a place that could capture my deep affection, that greater than Chick-fil-A does now, I would drop Chick-fil-A like she was hot. I would drop her and I would go to this new place. Or, this happened a few years ago, Chick-fil-A betrayed me by changing their barbecue sauce. Y'all remember this? They changed their barbecue sauce, and me and my wife, our barbecue sauce fiends, were so into Chick-fil-A and love the barbecue so much that the manager of the Chick-fil-A, often when he sees us, he brings us for free one of the, 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 thing, the things you buy at the store, the big tubes of it. So here y'all go. Instead of giving you 15 little ones, I'm just going to give you this big one. So we love it. So we went into Chick-fil-A, and we got the barbecue sauce, and noticed, oh, they changed the packaging. Interesting. And then we went to dip those glorious waffle fries, and when we put it in our mouth, this was not the same. Oh no, Chick-fil-A, what have you done? This is not your barbecue sauce. And me and my wife looked at, it, looked at one another, both thinking the thing we were not going to say out loud, Chick-fil-A's dead to us. <laughs> we're getting divorced. We're not coming back. Now thankfully, Chick-fil-A repented of that gross sin. And uh, heard the outcry, and they changed the barbecue sauce back. Hallelujah. That is a consumer relationship. That I will stay as long as it benefits me. Makes me happy. And that, sadly, is the reason so many of us treat marriage. Imagine if we treated our kids that way. Uh, Eden's my oldest. And imagine I came to Eden, and I said, you know what, Eden? I've been hanging out with the neighbor's kids a little bit. And, uh, you know, they listen a little better, kinder, more fun. I think I'm going to go take them as my kids and I'm going to get rid of you. I wouldn't do that, Eden. But imagine I did. That would be absurd. That would be absurd. Because we have a covenant relationship with our children, not a consumer one. We don't give up our children when they drive us crazy, because if so, none of us would have any children. We love them through thick and thin. We love them through the ups and the downs, the good and the bad. We are committed to them, not because they bring us happiness, but because we're family. And they're ours. And we're committed to them, bound to them in a covenant. 
as Christians, our view of marriage should be so high because we don't see marriage as some consumer thing that is fulfilling the empty parts in us. Rather, we see it as a covenant before one another and a covenant before God. A covenant that is binding, as Matthew 19, 6 says, that what God joins together, let no man separate. That God is joining us, and as, as Jesus will quote from Genesis 2, one flesh, he makes us one. It's this binding promise, this binding covenant that is for life. Marriage is supposed to be for life, but, but why is that? Why is marriage supposed to be for life? Is it just another thing that God made up and so it has to be for life because God said it? No. The reason marriage is for life is because marriage is a picture of the sort of relationship God wants to have with you. Marriage is a, is a mirror trying to show us the relationship God wants to have with you. That God would want to have us and hold us. That he would be with us through sickness and in health. That God would never leave us nor forsake us. That he would lay down his life in love and commitment to us. That is what he wants. And so marriage is a picture of that. And so divorce breaks the heart of God, not because we've just broken some rule, but because it communicates something that is untrue about the heart of God. Because it communicates something untrue about the gospel. Because God would never leave us no matter how annoying we get. God would never fall out of love with us, and he would never abandon us. You see, marriage is not some worldly institution invented for some practical reason like tax benefits. Marriage was invented by God as a picture of his relationship with his people. That he doesn't just want to be our king, he wants to be our groom. He wants to be in a marriage-type relationship with us. The entire Old Testament is full of pictures of this relationship God wants to have with us. And so when Jesus is questioned about this in Matthew 19, and Paul here in this chapter 7 is alluding to uh, this chapter 19, uh, the, uh, the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. You see, most people at the time believed that uh, a man could divorce his wife for almost any reason. They quoted Deuteronomy 24.1, which says, if a man takes a wife and marries her, if he finds some indecency in her, then he could divorce her. And there were two camps. There was the super conservative camp that thought indecency meant adultery. And that if you committed adultery, you could get a divorce. But the, the, the more progressive kind of modern people thought that indecency meant really anything that you could kind of justify. She's got indecent morning breath. Divorced. Indecent cooking skills. Divorced. Uh, you know, whatever. Uh, that you could kind of come up with any justification and get rid of her. Most of the people in Jesus' day, most of the religious scholars, they believed it this way. And so what they're trying to do is trap Jesus by getting him to side with the most conservative type people and thereby lose public opinion so that they could get him removed or killed. So what side does Jesus take? Well, he tells them that the only reason Moses told them that they could get a certificate of divorce was because of their hardness of heart. See, divorce is not a command, it's a concession. It's a concession. It is not what God wants or intended. It is something he permits because we are broken. He permits it because we are broken. And Jesus cites Genesis 2 uh, for this rationale uh, that, but, but, uh, that 
because we're broken, uh, that, that we can get this divorce. He cites Genesis 2, because we are supposed to be one flesh. One flesh forever is the point. That's what, that's what we're supposed to We're supposed to have, be one in our finances, one in our bodies, one in, and everything about us should be becoming, for two things becoming one. But, but Paul goes so far in this text to, to, uh, later to, to kind of say that we're, marriage is really kind of a picture of the Trinity. That as you have three persons in one, so too in marriage you have two becoming one. So what God joins together, don't let any man separate. He gives us a certificate of divorce for our hardness of heart because we break what God wanted. So we should have a high view of marriage because Jesus does. He gives a concession, not what he wants. Because marriage is a covenant that is picturing something about a God who loves us. And so we should not enter into marriage flippantly, and we shouldn't end a marriage because God never breaks his covenant with us. See, Christians should always see marriage as a lifelong covenant. So if that's the case, that Christians should always see marriage as a lifelong covenant, that we should have a high view of marriage, then the question that the text is going to answer for us, and we want to ask, is should Christians ever get divorced? Should a Christian ever get divorced? Well, here's the first thing to note. Divorce should always be the last option. It's an important principle, I think, part of the theme of this text, that divorce should always be the last option. The fact that divorce is given as a concession because of our hardness of heart reminds us that divorce is to be the last resort. One of the jokes us dads love to pull with our kids is the cut it off joke. You know, kid comes and he's, he's got like a, uh, you know, uh, uh, his nail got cut too short. And we're like, you know, daddy, it hurts. Daddy, I cut my finger. I got a briar. Oh, let me see that. I think we're going to have to cut it off. You know, I got a, daddy, I fell on my bike and I skinned my knee. Look, it's bleeding. Oh, no, let me see. We're going to have to cut that off, honey. Someone bring me in some scissors. We got to cut their leg off. No, daddy, don't cut it off. You know, we love that joke. We're, we're just joking, but imagine you go to the doctor because you have a splinter in your finger and you can't get it out, and the doctor says, let's look at that. You know what, let's just amputate it. Let's just take it off. We say, no, let's just fix the problem, right? A doctor would lose his license and be thrown in jail if he quickly and recklessly amputated limbs. Sprained ankle, cut it off. Hangnail, amputate. Wart, amputate. Get it out of here. Amputation is only something you do when you have exhausted every other option, when there is no hope to save the limb, when you've tried everything and nothing has worked, only then do you cut off the limb. Amputation is something required, but it is radical and it's always the last option. Getting divorced should be as drastic and tragic as having a limb amputated. Getting divorced should be as drastic and tragic as having a lamb amputated. So when can a Christian get divorced? Well, Jesus clearly give, says in the case of, of adultery in Matthew 19 that you can get divorced. You don't have to, right? This is a concession. You don't have to get divorced. You just are free to. But the concession is made. You can get divorced with a clear conscience. And what Paul is doing here in chapter 7 is expanding the logic Jesus uses in Matthew 19. And Paul is saying that if you are married to an unbeliever, and that, he says, one, if you're married to an unbeliever, you should stay with them. And we're going to get to more of that in a minute. But if that unbeliever decides that they don't want to be with you anymore, and they abandon you, 
then you are permitted to divorce with a clear conscience. But what is the reasoning for these exceptions? How is Paul picking up the logic from Jesus and expanding it to this? Here's the logic. Both adultery and abandonment destroy the covenant. Both adultery and abandonment destroy the covenant. If your spouse commits adultery, they have become one flesh with someone else and thereby have broken the covenant. And so you're free to divorce and remarry. Again, you don't have to, but you're allowed to. You're no longer bound to them, the text says. Then if your unbelieving spouse leaves you and divorces you, they have killed the covenant and are free to remarry. Those are two very clear biblical reasons for divorce. They're concessions allowing you to get out of this covenant. And really what is happening is the divorce is recognizing what is true. It is recognizing the covenant's been broken. And therefore, you are allowed to do it in a clear conscience. Some people suggest that if we use the same uh, logic that Paul is using here, uh, that there is another reason for divorce. And, and I want to, to be clear that this is not verbatim in the Bible. This is following Paul's logic. And so you should do this with lots of counsel and lots of wisdom and not just on your own. But this is, this is a potential another reason, and that's abuse. If someone is hurting you, abusing you, at the very least, you need to get out of the situation. You need to be separate. You need to leave. Get your children and get out of there. And after a time of counseling, allowing other people to speak into the situation, see the situation, it might be determined that because of the abuse, the covenant has been broken. That should be a flippant thing. It should be considered with your pastors and elders and people in Christian community. And the abusing spouse should be brought under church discipline, right? And if they don't repent... The covenants also can be broken because we're going to declare them an unbeliever. It's not explicit in the text, but it seems to follow the same logic. So, here is what divorce is. Divorce is the recognition that the covenant of marriage has been broken. Whether by adultery, by abandonment, or perhaps abuse, God in his grace not only gives us instructions for marriage and divorce in this chapter, but he also gives us some practical advice. Practical advice for how and when we should get divorced, but also uh, for how we should navigate the different seasons of life we find ourselves in. Third thing I want you to write down. No matter your circumstances, serve the Lord where you are. This is really the heart of the chapter. No matter your circumstances, serve the Lord where you are. This is really the theme of the chapter. He addresses those who are single, those who are married, those who are married to unbelievers, those who are single and cool with it, those who are single and want to be married, uh, widows, widowers. So basically every relationship status possible is addressed in the text. And the big point he is wanting uh, to make is summed up in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Well, where has God called you? Embrace the season of the life God has given you in this moment. If you are single, be content to know for this season of singleness, you have more time and more energy and less things to worry about, and so you can spend more time serving the Lord in the season of singleness. Do not just be running around doing everything you can to get in a relationship. If you are single, you can go spend a year as a journeyman uh, for the IMB as on the mission field in another country. 
can't do that if you're married. If you are single, you can devote time to discipleship and mentorship, relationships, serving church ministries with more time and focus than other people can. So let God use you and use that season of singleness in your life instead of being discontent and grumbling about uh, that you don't have somebody. Enjoy the time God has given you in that and serve the Lord. Paul goes as far in this chapter to really appeal to people to remain single if they can. He's like, look, I think it's better. He's telling them, look, if you can keep your passions in check and remain single, do so because then you're not worried about a spouse and worry about all their needs and worry about spending time with them and you can spend more time with the Lord. He says that's a good thing. But if you are married, then that's where God has called you. And you should not only be faithful to your spouse and care for them, but he tells us in verse 29 that the appointed time has become very short. Meaning that there is gospel urgency. And he says, you know, if you're married, you almost need to pretend like you're not married. People, his point is this, people are dying and going to hell all around us. People all around the world, two billion people do, have never heard about the gospel, don't know anything about Jesus, have died right now, would bust hell wide open. And he says, if you're married, you still need to live out the urgency of our calling. We should be serving the Lord, engaged in evangelism, engaged in discipleship. That is at the core mission of Paul. Look at your marriage, focus on your marriage, have a good marriage, do all that you need to do, but don't let it distract you from the mission where God has called you. Be faithful there. Love and serve your spouse and serve Christ. The other place Paul gives very specific instructions and practical help from really verse 12 to 16. He's saying, he's talking about those people who are married to unbelievers. And, and, and that is some of you, and that is some of your family, that is some of your friends. And he tells them that they should stay in those marriages. That, if, that they should stay married to this unbeliever. Unless that unbeliever walks away, they should stay. And the reason he says that you should stay in that marriage is really interesting and I think could be super confusing. So I want to walk through it. It says in verse 14 that the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his believing wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What in the world does that mean? Some of you in this room are married to unbelievers, and that is really hard for you. It is really hard for you. So what does it mean that your spouse is made holy and your children are made holy because of, your, because of you being married to them? Well, what it doesn't mean is that, that they're saved. That's not what it means. We know that later in the context because he says if they leave, you're free because you don't know whether or not you'll save your spouse. So we know it doesn't mean that. The word holy in its purest sense means set apart. And so what Paul is saying here is that those unbelieving spouses and those children in that marriage have been set apart for a special opportunity to have the gospel on display and be surrounded by gospel influence because of you. That you are the light shining in the darkness of your family. And if you leave, your unbelieving spouse will no longer have that constant witness in front of them. And so while it might be really hard Trust that the Lord can use your marriage to save your spouse and to use your marriage to share the gospel with your children and your spouse. Now, so, so Paul, Paul's point here is, look, this is difficult, but God has placed you here. He's assigned you here. This is where you are. And so be faithful in that season, whether you're single, married, married to an unbeliever, wherever. Be faithful there. Now, I do feel compelled as I talk about uh, uh, being married to an unbeliever uh, to say this. If, if you are single, 
in this room. The Bible is very clear. Do not get married to an unbeliever. We do not consent to the strategy of missionary dating. Uh, your marriage, marriage is tough already. Don't make it tougher by marrying somebody who sees the world completely different than you do. Um, uh, we see that in other places in Scripture. It talks about what it means by being unequally yoked. Paul here is addressing people who were not believers when they got married, and one of them has come to faith since then. Right? So, so do yourself a favor and don't date someone who's not a Christian. Because the whole point of dating is to get married. Don't set yourself up for failure like that. Uh, if you are in that situation, keep sharing the gospel with them. If you're in a situation where you're married to an unbeliever, keep sharing the gospel with them. That's why God has placed you there. So wherever you are, single, married, widowed, married to an unbeliever, wherever, God has placed you there for a reason and a purpose. And that purpose is to serve him. If you're single, you'll have a lot more time. If you're a widow or a widower, you have a lot more time now to devote to the Lord. So use that time to serve him. If you're married, serve your spouse. But find all the time you can to link arms together and serve him together. If you're single, don't just be sad and mopey about it. Go serve the Lord. Finally, if you're single but you want to get married, Paul tells us here that that's okay. Like he's like, I, don't, I wouldn't do it. But if you can. And he's like, look, it's fine. But I think this one question is really at the heart of what Paul is saying to single people wanting to get married. And so any potential spouse that you have, I think you should uh, ask this question of a potential spouse. Can I or can we serve God faithfully together? Can we serve God diligently, faithfully together? Or will this person only hold me back from serving God? I think that's, that's enough. There's a lot of questions to ask about a potential spouse. That's number one. Can we serve God better together than we can apart? Can we serve God faithfully together or will this person hold me back from how I want to serve the Lord? Will they be more jealous of my time that I want to give to the Lord and therefore hold me back? If you can serve the Lord faithfully together, if you can serve the Lord better together than you can apart, then, then marry them. But if they're going to nag and complain and be a thorn in your side as you try to serve Jesus, then you need to drop them like it's hot. Marriage is for life. Serving God is for eternity. Make sure your marriage isn't going to distract from your eternal calling. I want to take a moment here and I want to, to end this sermon with two practical questions. Uh, with what I hope is biblical wisdom and is at the heart of the text I want to give you, one, uh, some practical help for how to stay in and fight for a difficult marriage. And two, if you're divorced and or remarried, how does God see you? So first, how do I stay in a difficult marriage? There are some of you in this room right now and you have either thought about getting a divorce You've started planning how you might make that divorce happen. You've called a lawyer. You're on, you have the papers and you're just ready to deliver them. And you might be in that place for a good biblical reason. Maybe your spouse has cheated on you. Or you might be there because you're just sick and tired of fighting or the other myriad of reasons that you have. But whatever the reason, whether you have biblical warrant for it or not, allow me to both plead with you to fight for the marriage and to give you a few things to try before you call it quits. Because marriage is a lifelong covenant, 
Uh, it's before God, and it is a picture of God's love for us. It is worth fighting for. So four quick things of what you can fight for your marriage. Number one, and th- this is really true whether you're fighting or you're single. You just need to know this. Reject the myth that you married the wrong person. Reject the myth that you married the wrong person. Guys, our culture loves this idea of a fairy tale love story. We love the idea of the one, our soulmates, of finding the person that you were created for, to find the one that, that you know, had you at hello. Every chick flick, every country song, every Taylor Swift album is dripping with this. So allow me to break the news for you. There is no such thing as the one. There is no such thing as a soulmate. There is no such thing as the right person. Because the truth is, you have n- no one has ever married the right person. We actually always marry the wrong person. Because both of you are incredibly sinful and therefore are nowhere near a perfect match. The reason it is so important for you to know this and to really believe this, that, that there's no such thing as the one or a soulmate, Because if you believe the cultural myth that there is someone out there for you, then when you are in your current marriage, when you're in a marriage and things get rough, things get difficult, you're not happy, you're fighting, you you feel like you're in a loveless marriage, and you think it's all a big mistake, that you married the wrong one, you will allow yourself to think, oh, I can get out of this because I'm just happy to, I married the wrong one was the problem. That's the problem. I married the wrong one. Do not allow yourself to believe that for a second. You always marry the wrong person. And because, yeah, a couple, couple reasons. One, because you're sinners. You marry the wrong person. Two, by the time you hit 70, sociologists say that you have been five different people because you're always changing. And so your spouse will not be the person that, that they are 70 years from now that when you met them. They will change. They're always changing. And finally, there is not the one because God's purpose in marriage is not to complete you or fill some missing part in you or to give you some soulmate to make you whole. Instead, he gives us marriage to make us holy. God's idea of marriage is, hey, I'm going to put these two selfish, egotistical sinners together in a lifelong covenant. So after seven and eight, or 80 years of communication, forgiveness, and compromise, they'll be more holy because of all the forgiveness they've had to give and receive. So if your marriage has hit a difficult patch, it is not because they aren't the one. It's because you're both sinners, and God is using that moment in your marriage to make you holy. So do not quit on what God is doing. Instead, fight, endure, and become what God is making you through your marriage. Number two, look to Jesus for strength. Look to Jesus for strength. Marriage is a covenant between you and your spouse and God. Three-way covenant. And so when you feel like you can't continue on for the sake of your spouse and you're just done with them, continue on because of Jesus, because you made a covenant with him too. And your word matters, and your marriage pictures something important about Jesus. But also realize that the secret to a healthy marriage is not great communication. It is not understanding and it is not compromise. The secret to a healthy marriage is the ability to quickly and genuinely forgive each other. The one thing that will doom a marriage is uh, an inability forgive, to forgive one another. 
And your problem right now, if you're in that situation, uh, is most likely an unwillingness to forgive and work through some problem. And you probably aren't willing to forgive because they've hurt you and you feel like, I would never do what they did. The reason you can't forgive is because you said, I would have never treated them that way. Well, let me tell you this. Forgiveness always hurts. Forgiveness always hurts because that's what love is. Love is not an emotion. Uh, Love is receiving the hurt instead of giving back the hurt. It is receiving and bearing the hurt instead of making the other person bear the hurt. Forgiveness always hurts. And also do not believe the lie that says you would have never done what they did to you because you would have. Given the right set of circumstances, you would do that and worse. You are just as bad of a sinner as they are, if not worse. And so do not get on a high horse, high horse thinking that you are better than your spouse. If you are having a hard time forgiving them, go take some time by yourself to reflect on your own sin and your own failures before God and then come back. And if you really get that, you'll forgive a lot quicker. An unwillingness to forgive exposes that we don't clearly see ourselves. And so look to Jesus for strength and to forgive. See, third, fight for it for the sake of your kids. You're in a difficult marriage right now, fight for it for the sake of your kids. Paul literally makes this point in verse 14. To stay with your unbelieving spouse so that your kids will not be unclean. We talked about that, what that meant. So they'll have a clear testimony of the gospel and the faithfulness of God uh, in your marriage, even when it's hard. Because I cannot tell you how many couples... Uh, I have done marriage counseling with who decided to end it. And in my final plea, before they called it quits, uh, before they gave up, I said, fight for this for your children. Because if you give up, your children will doubt God's love for a long time. And they will either leave the faith or they will struggle with the security in God's love for a long time. And without fail. Every one of those couples who gave up, I watched their kids in my youth group either leave the faith or struggle to believe that God could really love them. Not to mention all the other statistically proven difficulties that those kids will face. Your continuing in a difficult marriage communicates to your children that God's love is not conditional upon them. It communicates and it reminds them that when we annoy God or disappoint God or make him unhappy, it doesn't just, he doesn't just leave us. He's faithful. Fighting for your marriage demonstrates that to your kids that God's love is persistent on a fundamental level. Now God's grace is amazing and he heals and restores and can work in your kid's life despite that, right? We see that all, all over the place. But just because God can work despite our failings does not mean that we should take lightly the damaging power and consequences of sin. Divorce will affect your kids, and so you should fight for them. Finally, get outside help. Get outside help. You're in a rough patch. Get help. It was about a year ago I got a phone call from a guy who told me, he said, Brent, it's over. I was like, what are you talking about? He said, he's done. She's done. The marriage is too far gone. It's over. We're done. Can't be fixed. And I'm, I'm, uh, it's a Sunday morning, and I go back here, and I'm on the phone pleading with him. Let, well, well, come. How about we give it one more shot? Come sit down with me and Kate. Bring, bring your wife. Let's sit down. Let's see if we can hash it out. Let's see if we can fix it. And, and 
and it was difficult. I, he's like, well, finally, he's like, well, I, I'll ask her and see if she, see if she wants to. We sat down in my kitchen and for the next month walked through their problems, walked through the difficulties, and today they're married, and their marriage is alive and well and thriving. You are not Superman. You do not have all the answers. And just because you can't fix your marriage doesn't mean that there are not tools and resources and an outside perspective that can't help your marriage actually be rich and thriving and good. And so seek help. Men, it is not weakness on your part to get help. It is weakness on your part to not get help. Men, we think it, that we can do everything. It is actually strength that comes along and says, I need somebody to help me. That is strength, not weakness. And so seek outside help. Now the final question that many of you are really worried about many of us struggled with and are really scared to hear the answer of is if I am divorced and or, remar- and or remarried, how does God see me? If I'm divorced or remarried, how does God see me? Well, let me say this clear from the beginning. Being divorced is not the unforgivable sin. Quite far from it. Now, let me show you a fascinating verse that I hope will come for you. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. God says, for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. This is God talking about Israel, his bride. I sent her away with a decree of divorce. God has the audacity to call himself a divorced person. God knows what it is like to be cheated on. One of the major themes of the Old Testament is that God's people are like a wife to God and they have been unfaithful and committed adultery against God again and again and again by serving foreign gods. The entire book of Hosea is about this one idea. Now God is not the victim on this side of the divorce. He's not to, he, he, he is the victim. He's not the one to blame. But he still he understands what it is like to be in a difficult relationship. And if you are divorced, God identifies and sympathizes with you. He gets it. He understands. He's been there. But you have more hope and comfort than just the reality that God has been there too. For those of you in this room that have had an unbiblical divorce, that is you've got divorced for the wrong reasons, for unbiblical reasons just because you fell out of love or whatever. When Jesus died on the cross, he covered the sins of your divorce fully and completely. He paid for it. And if you have trusted in Christ, he has completely 100% forgiven you. Now some of you think, because of the lies of the enemy that, yeah, you know God has forgiven you, but he kind of winks at you and he's still kind of holding it over your head. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. He is not holding it over you. There is no guilt. There is no shame. If you belong to Jesus, even if your divorce was for the worst possible reason, in Christ you are completely forgiven and made righteous. And do you want to know how God looks at you? He looks at you with the same smile that he smiles over Jesus. The smile of God is yours. And so you do not have to walk around feeling this weight of guilt and shame because you know that this divorce wasn't right. You can let it go because it was nailed to a bloody cross and dealt with. You don't have to make up for it. You don't have to make up for it the rest of your life. You can rest in the grace and the mercy of God. 
And if you look to the family tree of Jesus, you know what you will find? You will find broken people and tragedy. You will find prostitutes, and you will find a man who had an affair and covered it up by murdering her husband. And yet God forgave that man, and he used that man to bring the Savior into the world. Tim Keller, Tim Keller, remarking on that truth, says it like this. What does that mean other than God is trying to say to all of us, I love redeeming the worst situations. I love redeeming the hardest cases. Go ahead, try me. God can bring beauty and redemption out of our biggest mistakes. None of our mistakes are wasted. You see, the cross means that you are forgiven, but the resurrection of Jesus means that even the worst mistakes of yours can be reversed, can be undone. And that means, and I want you all to hear this, you are, no matter what's going on in your life, divorced, anything else, you are never on plan B. You are never on a plan B life. You didn't miss out on the one. And you didn't screw up your life so bad that God is here salvaging the best he can get out of the rest of what you have. That is not true. You are not just spare parts to God. Right now, if your hope and trust is in Christ, he can use you, bless you, and in Christ make you whole. Not plan B. What did the text say? God has assigned you here. It's been a difficult road for some of you. But you're not there by accident. God isn't responding to crisis like he drives some ambulance. He's, he's there. He's seen you through the end of this tunnel. You might have mistakes and failures in your past, but those mistakes and those failures do not define you. Do you know what does define you? A bloody cross and an empty tomb and a God who looks at you and he says, you are my son and you are my daughter and in you I am well pleased. That's what defines you. Nothing that the enemy throws at you. No lie that says you're worthless, you're a failure, you're broken, you're used, you're damaged goods. None of that's true. You are a child of God, a child of the king, made whole through his blood. And so believe what God says about you. Not what you say to you. Not what the enemy says to you. Not what the whispers in the night say to you. What Jesus says about you. Believe that. There is no guilt, no shame. Look to Jesus and have peace. If you're divorced, have peace. He's called you to peace. Rest in his mercy. Rest in his mercy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much this morning that you are not a spiteful, vengeful, angry, get even God. But you are a just God. And you look at our sin and our sin is grievous to you, but you've nailed it to a cross. You've nailed all of it to a cross. Our deepest, darkest secrets, our worst failures, our divorces, our adulteries, our affairs, our porn addictions, you've nailed it all to the cross, and you buried it in a tomb, and it is no more. And so, Father, this morning, would you do two things in us? 
Would you give us a high view of marriage so that we see it as lifelong, that we go into it committing, that we will fight till the bitter end for this thing. And then will you also restore those of us in this room who, are, who have been affected by divorce, who have been broken by it, who are hurting over it. Would you make us whole and not, hold, not let it be held over our heads, not constantly be doubting and feeling the stress and the weight of it, but to release it and to let it go, that it's dead, it's gone. It's no more. Let none of us who are in Christ walk around feeling shame and guilt over the mistakes of our past. And Father, for the, for the children and for the family members who have been affected by some divorce in their life, God, would you, would you bring beauty out of ashes? Would you bring beauty out of brokenness, wholeness, as only you can? Father, for those in this room who don't know you, never trusted in you, and don't know what it's like to have a father or a spouse be faithful, would you run to him this morning and find a God who is worthy of your affection and your time and your allegiance? God, make us whole. If you're here this morning and I can pray with you about anything, it would be my joy and my honor to to pray with you about whatever's going on in your life. To trust in Christ, to lay some sin at the feet of Jesus, to to be made whole by trusting in Him. I'd love to to do that with you this morning. Christ Jesus, give us strength. In your name we pray. All those people said, let's stand together.